welcome to the 16th episode of the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the underground bunker. Earlier this week, we received a surprise. It was a message from someone we haven't heard from in a few years, and someone we really admired. It was Miriam Francis, who made such a strong impression during Leah Remini's second season of Scientology in the Aftermath, and who also helped us out with a couple of pieces here at the bunker. If you haven't seen her episode of The Aftermath in a while, which was the premiere episode of the second season, you really should reacquaint yourself with it to remember what a brave act it was for her to reveal that she had been abused by her own Sea Org father in Scientology. She gave us a great piece to publish this week to help us understand what it's like to come forward with allegations of abuse in the hopes that it helps us understand a little of what Danny Masterson's accusers are going through as they wait for the trial to begin this week. And even better, she agreed to talk to us from Australia for the podcast. Miriam Francis, wow, it's so great to hear from you again. And thank you so much for writing a piece for us this week and also agreeing to be on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm going really well. Thank you so much, Tony. It's really great to hear your voice and have a chat with you. And yes, I did. I wrote a bit of a piece for you. Um, what I wanted to do is try to um, help in the understanding of what it takes to go through a process like this. Um, and I guess to sort of help with, give some understanding of just a hint of maybe what um, some of the experience of what those women um, who are going through this trial with Danny Masterson. Um, and what I wanted to do rather than just say, you know, this is how it is, or, you know, um, this is what the experience is like. I, what I wanted to do is sort of draw on my own experience and talk through what that felt like. You know, what did that look like to me? What it, how did that feel um, when I went through my own process? And also just those aspects of where my process was kind of thwarted or um, directed because of influences of Scientology. And I'm hoping that it will give people hopefully some kind of understanding of what it takes to go through each part of that process. And it's like little tiny steps. And that's what I wanted to kind of portray in what I wrote. Well, you did a wonderful, wonderful job. Uh, thank you so much for sending that in. Thank you. But let's uh, remind some of our newer readers who you are. I, I became aware of you when you showed up in the opening episode of Leah Remini's second season, yes. Scientology and the Aftermath. And uh, the first season was terrific, but wow, what a way to open the second season with these harrowing stories of what children go through yes. in Scientology, particularly the ones that have been through abuse. Yes. Um, can you just remind our viewers, just our readers, listeners, just a little bit what uh, what that episode was like for you? Yeah, um, it was... Um, so the episode I did with Sina Kamala, um, we had grown up within the Church of Scientology from very young ages, um, we knew each other, we were best friends, um, and we shared some similar experiences, um, definitely the same experiences in terms of lack of an education, the abuses that occurred. Um, and we also had, we also experienced um, sexual assaults. Um, it was really important in doing that um, story with, um, the aftermath, it was to, to take people into the past of how it was for us to be raised in that environment um, and some of the things that we were subjected to. And for us, it was the first time that we were speaking out um, publicly. And it was a very nerve wracking experience. Um, and it was it was very tough. Um, yeah, but it, it for me, it did provide um, once I said those things in a public way, it gave me a sense of relief because it was my way of um, obtaining some form of justice for myself. Right. And 
um, subsequent to the episode, um, I think both you and Sina went to the LAPD, right? So, yes, um, captured in the episode, um, the LAPD um, came to us. We did a report um, on our each of our respective own cases. And um, unfortunately, that that hasn't hasn't gone anywhere. Um, Yeah, I've I've sort of really hit a wall with my case. Um, And so just going back and I, I cover this a little bit in the episode, where I first, um, and this is in my article as well, when I first um, made my official written statement to the police was 2012. And then it was investigated over the course of the next few years. And 2015, the Australian police, um, well, it was taken to uh, the decision of whether or not it would be prosecuted or not. And it was decided, well, um, my father, who is the perpetrator, lives in the U.S. And so it was decided that they would send my case over to the U.S. authorities. Um, now, it goes via Interpol, and then it's passed on. Now, that was that occurred in 2015, where it was sent from Australia. Now, in, at the end of 2016, the statute of limitations in California were lifted, And some of the instances of abuse occurred, sexual abuse occurred in Los Angeles um, when uh, my father was in the SEA organization. And so what LAPD has come back to me with is to say, well, you've lodged your report with us in 2017, but your original report was sent in 2015. So we need to determine when that was received in the U.S., to determine whether or not the statute of limitations applies. Right. And basically it just hasn't gone anywhere, right? Yeah. And so they've said, well, we can't locate that original filing or that report from Australia mm-hmm. and where that landed or whether it did land, um, which is, is, is kind of quite insane, really, if you think about it. So they can't take the case any further in the state of California because they don't know whether or not or when my original uh, case arrived. So it's just madness. The other thing that they said is that, well, we can't locate um, your father, Chris Francis. And um, I've been able to locate him actually with the help of a journalist. Um, We were able to locate him. Um, He's actually since been contacted my uncle contacted him. My father uh, provided a, a written confession via email. Um, now, he admits to the incidences that occurred in Australia, but he conveniently cannot recall incidents which occurred within the U.S. Mm-hmm. So, can. yeah, um, it's, it's just a really tricky thing. And also, I think the thing is that you really have to balance out, you know, how much do you want to give to this? Like I've got, you know, my family that I want to give my time to and be there for, um, you know, I want to enjoy my life. And at each step of the way, you know, this is a very long process. Um, you know, you have to decide how much you want to give to it, if that makes sense, like how much energy and emotion and, um, time and effort, Um, it can be a very exhausting process. So the way that I've balanced that out is to just to take little steps at a time. And that when I was ready to do a particular step, I would do that. And then I'd, you know, give myself some space for a little while um, and just sort of balance things out that way. Well, uh, and then there's more. uh, So you're you're saying your father has admitted to something that happened in Australia, but not in the U.S., Yes, yeah, so but he admitted an, but... to sorry, he admitted to several instances of oh, it wow. um, to his admission okay. of when uh, which occurred in Australia. Now, I left Australia when I was I was turning six years old. I sort of arrived in Los Angeles um, just having turned six. So um, yeah, so he admitted to several instances which took place um, during the time period. Um, so my mother left to. LA. So she wasn't present. So it was during the time that she wasn't present. Um, so it occurred over probably about a year and a half to two year period. Yeah. 
well, there's that other layer that I wanted to bring in. And that's Mm. your mother, because you wrote about this for us as well. Yes. That not only are you dealing with being raised in Scientology and your father even admitting to these violations, but in the world of Scientology, of course, they keep everything inside. Yes. Doesn't, doesn't go to authorities. So it's been very difficult to get any justice. But on top of all that, your mother is also completely dedicated to Scientology. Mm -hmm. And you wrote a really, really moving piece for us about kind of discovering how deep that dedication went for her to Scientology. And sort of she cut you out of her life earlier than you even realized. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that's such a good point. And actually there's a few things that th- a few things that you've touched on there, which are really important. Um, so just to track back my, my parents were in the Sea Org when I was born. So essentially I was born into it. They were in the Sea Org in Sydney and my mother was then recruited over to Los Angeles to, she was a, um, a really great, a, an amazing oil painter um, prior to working for Scientology. So she's recruited to Los Angeles. Um, and actually Mike Rinder in the episode, he mentions that he was involved in that, or he, um, he knew of it, or yet I think that he was involved in the project because the project was to create this life exhibition, um, this story of Elrond Hubbard's life. And so my mother was recruited over there to create these, um, oil paintings, which you'll still see there today. There's a series of oil paintings depicting different parts of his life. So while she was over there doing that, my father, he then left the Sea Org um, to raise myself and my brothers. And we, yeah, and so at that stage, that's when the sexual assaults occurred. Um, So now at the time of when I did the aftermath, I wasn't very comfortable with talking about um, in detail what had happened. I just hadn't reached that point in my process of where I was able to vocalize that, but um, I'm, I'm more comfortable in talking about it now. So we'll say that, so when the incidents occurred, um, they were always, they were sort of quite uniform. They were always in the middle of the night. I was in, I was asleep. I would wake up to them happening. Um, and I would sort of go through this process of like, what's going on? Um, I wanted it to stop. It was incredibly terrifying and confusing. Um, it was just very difficult to understand what was going on. And at the time I developed this thing where I would, cause I was just like, I just want to die. I just, I, I want to escape this so badly. Like just kill me. I just want to die. I just want to not exist. And at that point I would start to, I would just black out. So I have these blackout memories, um, this, these parts of my memories that are just completely black. Anyway, so it's been really difficult to, uh, to try and remember some of these things and to talk about them, and especially in the police statements and all that kind of thing. It's been an incre- incredibly long process. But going back to what, um, to with regards to my mother, so she first knew about this when I was 12 years old. Um, she found out about it because my dad was on clearance lines to go to gold and this comes up on his confession and he um he then is put on a handling where he um has to come and he has to come and see me i was at the ranch school at the time and he confessed to me what he did um and And let me just let me just explain to some of our non-Scientology people, what you just explained is that um, when you join the Sea Org, you sign a billion-year contract, but inside the Sea Org, it's it's an incredibly hierarchical paramilitary organization. Yes. And there are some some, there are orgs inside of orgs, and you know, you have to, you, you always know where the pecking order is, but only the cream of the crop got to go to this special secretive base in California called Int or Gold. And in order to get an assignment like that, especially one that's so high or higher high ranking like gold, 
You had to go through these intense interrogations that are called sex checks in Scientology. They're confessionals. You have to give a, a full life history of all the sexual, you know, experiences you've had. And they use, the thing is they use this e-meter and what's important is the Scientologist believes that the e-meter is infallible and can literally read their minds. Now it's not true. It's just a device that measures skin galvanism. But as long as the Scientologist believes Mm. that this device can detect any untruth or anything, it becomes an incredibly powerful interrogation tool. And so Scientologists are very, they don't even, they just give up everything. So Mm -hmm. even though he was essentially applying, imagine this in the outside world that you're applying for a job or promotion at your job to go to this higher rank. But first you have to spill your guts about all these horrible things you've done to your daughter. I mean, it's just so bizarre, but that's how it works in Scientology is that Faced with the e-meter, he then spills his guts, Yes, admits to these things he's done to you, and then the remedy is they make him confront you with it. It's yes. just amazing. It's oh, this, this is just like the tip of the iceberg. So, yeah, and I should clarify, when he first rejoins the Sea Org, having, oh, okay, sorry, let me back up. So my mom is off in L.A. doing the paintings for the Life Exhibition. I'm in Australia, um, in Sydney, um, for a period of about, I would say it's roughly about two years, year and a half, two years. Then um, in 1990, we then fly. So she calls us and says, you can come to LA now. And my dad goes through this process of like selling all of our things. And um, I think he had to save up for our flights and all that kind of thing. So we then go over there. My dad then rejoins the Sea Org. And at that stage, so he would be required to do a life history but the life history is a like a written statement. Um, right. And then you do get a meter check, um, but that's just like a really quick meter check. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so then he, so then he goes, so he joins the Sea Organ. There was this whole idea of how, cause my mom was still at gold um, at golden era productions at in base. And he was supposed to go eventually onto clearance lines so that he can go, go to gold. And then that would mean that us children would then get, to go to the Int Ranch. And the idea my mom gave us is like, oh, and then we'll all be together. But what actually happens is that we're, uh, my brothers and I are placed into the care of Scientology in Los Angeles um, at a place called the CEO. My dad at the time works for CC Int, So that's where he originally starts working. And he actually works there for several years before he eventually gets into clearance lines while he's working at the gold rep office in Los Angeles. So there's this whole process. Now, while he's at CC, um, the, the, the abuse and my, my mother. So this is the other part is that getting back to my mom, she's at in base, right? So I have no contact with her. We arrive in Australia with this, sorry, we arrive in the U S with this idea, like, Oh, we'll, you know, we'll be with our mom. Like, you know, how great. Um, but we're separated from her within a few days and we rarely see her for the rest of the time um, that, you know, for the rest of our childhood, basically, because she's placed it in base. Um, I don't have any direct access to her, even like the address is confidential. I never knew her address. In fact, I never even knew the address or the location until well after I left Scientology many, many, many years later. So there's this huge separation. In the meantime, the sexual abuse by my father um, occurs um, at least two times to my memory that I have vivid memory of. And and so so getting back to so he goes to he he um, goes to the gold rep office and he's on clearance lines. And at this stage, it's a full blown confessional that you have to go through in order to be cleared. And at that stage, um, and then that's where it's like really rigorous, you know, on the e-meter at that stage, he admits to it or he confesses to it. Um, at this stage, I'm 12 years old and he comes to the ranch and he tells me, um, what he's done. And at the end of it, he says, tells me to act normal. So that, that was my instructions. And it's like, I was just left with like, you know, nothing to, 
support me through that. Um, it was really, really difficult. My mother then also um, becomes aware of it at this time. And so then, um, and she doesn't try to talk to me about it or anything like that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just incredibly difficult just with the relationship with my mother, just all these years of separation. Um, and then, you know, she knows about it, doesn't do anything about it. I'm sort of, I then struggle with this for, um, you know, many years trying to figure out like what to do. Um, now just in terms of like what you touched on there with the difficulty in, um, um, with my mother being in Scientology and her having um, knowledge about it and that being sort of uh, something that would stop the police process. Um, yeah, it just, it, it did make it incredibly difficult. And in fact, she refused to provide a police statement, even though she had, you know, personal knowledge of it. Well, and that's the other thing is that Scientology has known for decades Yes. Because they got this out of him, but instead of reporting it to the police, they kept it inside because that's Correct. what they do. Correct. Um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. Um, and, and, and in fact, um, they wouldn't let, let me leave unless I signed this affidavit that had been typed up for me. I had not written this. And I remember you know, it being, you know, given to me and I was just, just completely appalled. Um, and it said, I forgive my father for what he has done to me and I'll never pursue the church of Scientology in a court of law. And I was 17 years old. Um, and I was leaving the C organization and, um, yeah, it was just like, I just couldn't believe it, but I didn't have any other choice. So, you know, I was forced to sign it. Um, and when I say I didn't have any other choice, um, there's quite a bit of detail to that situation. But basically, at that time, I was um, at St. Hill in the UK. And I'd only had I arrived there with just having six months stay on my passport. And they'd said, Oh, you know, that's fine. Don't worry, we'll sort that all out later. But by this stage, I'm like, I want to leave. And I have two weeks left. And I have no money, like no education. I don't have anyone to go to and live with in the outside world. But I just could not be there any longer. And um, the person that was sort of like handling me at the time and was doing my, um, he'd done my sec check. And um, he had said, look, I'll help you out. Um, I'll find you a place to stay. I'll, I'll, I wanted to go to Australia um, to live, you know, go back to where I'd come from. And he was like, yeah, well, the only way you can do that is if I, if, as if you sign this statement. Yeah. And I was like, in the back of my mind, I was like, what's my other option? Like I'm, I'm stuck in England, like where I'm like illegally like living. Where, where do I even go to live? Like, how do I, feed myself like where do you know how do I find a bed to sleep in like I just it was just such a scary um you know going out into the outside world is already scary in itself but then to not have a place to go to was absolutely terrifying um and I, I just thought well that's you know I don't have a choice I just have to do that well I mean look living in a foreign country without proper uh, documentation, right? a father who's admitted to abusing you, a mother who no has known about it and doesn't do anything about yes. it. I mean, there's, uh, this is an, it's an impossible situation you are in. And yet you managed to make your way. And, and so you went back to Australia at that point. Yeah, exactly. So they had um, set me up with um, basically a place to land I was given, um, it was a Scientology family that had agreed to take me in and they had agreed to three months of um, giving me a roof over my head. And, you know, I hoped like that that would be enough. Um, and it, it was scary, but it was, ex it was also exciting by that stage when I was leaving. I was like, okay, like this is it. I've got a way out. Um, and I just looked at it like a real adventure. So, um, 
from there, I sort of just had to, yeah, I was just starting from scratch. And what I write about in the article um, is I'm, I'm trying to frame the time so that people can understand that, um, you know, when I first arrived, you know, my focus was on surviving and hopefully surviving well. And that's what I did for nearly 10 years after I arrived in Australia. And actually, I should say with that, initially, there was actually quite a few years there because I, I lived with a Scientology family. I was still very much um, connected to Scientology. And also I thought, okay, well, I'd failed as a Sierra member, but maybe I could be a good Scientologist. So I was very much still a Scientologist. And I, and I thought um, that was all I knew. And I had not step out, stepped outside of that. And it wasn't until my late 20s that I did. And along with that um, came the sort of realization that, okay, I really need to do something about this. Like I've been struggling with this for so long. Um, Scientology hasn't worked for me basically to try and heal this, you know, what had happened to me as a child. And so that's when I sought counseling. Um, but I just wanted to show in that, that like, yes, it does. It takes a long time to make your way out of that fog and um, to start addressing these things that had happened. Well, yeah. And one of the things you point out in the piece that's so good is that one of the you know extra challenges, special challenges that people coming out of Scientology face mm. is not just all these things you've already mentioned, like you know, so many people come out of the sea or they've never spent any time in the modern world. They don't have a bank account. They don't have any insurance right. accounts, any documentation. That's a big enough challenge. But yeah. then, you know, added on top of that is this, you know, that can be such a difficult life and um, mentally it can be so tough on somebody. But then there's the thing about growing up in Scientology and having it absolutely pounded into your head that psychiatry is the last thing you would ever want to get near. And that, you know, yes. the modern mental health field is the most evil force in the universe. And, and you, I thought you did a very good job explaining that that's getting over. That was part of this whole journey for you. Absolutely. And that is so true. Um, it was very scary, um, you know, and I had to weigh that up. It's like, I need to try and find a way to, fix this broken part of me, I guess is how I sort of felt like this, this darkness, this heaviness, it had gotten so heavy. And I tried to run for it for, from, uh, from it for so long. And I just couldn't. And I was so weighed down. I just thought it was to a point where I was just desperate for some help. And I had to weigh that up and be like, okay, is this a risk that I'm willing to take? Um, and I sort of had to just like take a deep breath and, um, and, and arrive and, and go through those steps. Um, and as well, like, you know, I didn't immediately jump to, okay, I'm going to, you know, um, do a police report. You know, it was months of counseling and, you know, and talking about what had happened, talking about the circumstances, you know, in which I had grown up to really kind of like release that up a bit. Um, it was very what? difficult and it was, a, it was a very uncomfortable process. Like it was not, it was not, yeah, it was not comfortable. It was physically I mean, uncomfortable. I, can, I, would, I would imagine there would just be a period of finding the language to even speak of it with another person. That's, that's so true. Right? That's so true. And I mean, language is just a whole other challenge um, as well. You know, that's just another layer, having grown up in Scientology. You know, when I was, um, when I was young, um, so like the, my first um, auditing session Scientology auditing session where I actually talk about it um you know the auditors sort of like you know coaxing me along and I'm like I'm just like I, I don't have the word for it so there was no word that I could point to in any kind of Scientology textbook or um you know there's this big book of definitions like there was nothing in there that said about what I had experienced and it was just fortunate that I also really enjoyed reading novels and, you know, um, we'd watched movies and I, I must have, you know, found this word somewhere or other, which was um, molest, you know, someone's been molested. And that was, I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's the word that describes it. And in fact, I couldn't even say that out loud. I had to write it down on a piece of paper um, 
at that stage, I would have been about probably 14 years old. Um, and I just, I find, found it so hard to like get that out of me. Um, it was incredibly difficult. So the counseling process, um, yeah, it was very hard. And then also there's like the layers, the Scientology sort of layers to it as well. I think it would be incredibly difficult for someone who wasn't, you know, had never had anything to do with Scientology, um, especially, I, you know, I think that other layer as well is that it was my father. Um, you know, that's sure. so difficult to say. It's like, you know, yeah. my father sexually assaulted me on a number of occasions, you know, from when, the time I was a very, very small child. In fact, my earliest memories are of that. And that is so, so difficult to try and extract that data and to, you know, give that to somebody else. Um, yeah. yeah. And what I wanted to also just say as well um, is that I read, I read an article um, recently and it said, well, there was an Australian um, government survey and it was 87% of um, sexual assaults go unreported. So 87% you know, of sexual assaults which occur do not get reported. And that's a, a huge, huge statistic. And I just wanted to, to sort of, you know, point to that and say, you know, there are already massive challenges um, to people um, in reporting these type of incidents, let alone the other layers that are sort of involved here. Yeah, I just sort of wanted to communicate that. Well, it's a it's big challenge. And it's a big challenge. And then Scientology just makes everything worse. Yes, you know, absolutely. Definitely in your case and then the, the one you cited involving uh, Jan Eastgate is another one yes. that's just horrendous. Yes, and, absolutely uh, horrendous. And then with the Masterson, I mean, the, one of the challenges in this case is that time had taken, uh, you know, his, his, you know, it's been quite a while since these incidents occurred. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, all three of the women whose uh, allegations are the subject of the trial next week, yes, um, they they all were Scientologists at the time. They yeah. were all very fearful of what the church would do, but also they didn't know about each other. Yeah. And, um, this was, you know, this is where I guess it's a little different than what you went through was that eventually they found each other. And that's a really interesting story. I know some details. I hope I can tell those details. I'm kind of waiting for the, to see what gets said in the trial. Yeah. But um, it's really interesting how these women found each other. And then once they, you know, they have, they have told me um, that they were horrified once they realized, wait, I'm not the only victim. Right. And then it becomes like, well, I've got to do something in case there are even others. And of course, in this case, my goodness. There was. Yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. So, Tony, th that's such an important point, right? Okay. So when we have historical sexual assaults, and let's say one person takes it to the police. Um, police are, it, it's very, very difficult for police to prosecute um, a case. You know, it, there's usually there is um, not a whole lot of evidence at that point in time. And they would likely say, um, I've witnessed this conversation um, taking place before where they will say, um, well, look, it's, it's just you. And so if, if it's just you, then we don't have a case. But if there's other people that are, you know, have experienced the same thing from the same person, then you might have a chance. Um, and, and like, and they, that person might not even have known that at the time, but certainly um, the police know that it's very difficult to try and take that case any further without um, it, you know, being, uh, without it having happened to a number of people. And so they've been really fortunate in that they they were able to then discover each other eventually and that would have absolutely helped in the prosecution but will help in the prosecution of this case and it also means that um I, I believe that that and also the fact that they must have a substantial amount of evidence for this to have moved forward in the way that it has eventually i know it's taken a very long time i wish that it was a shorter um you know process but but that, without a shred of doubt in my mind, I believe there must be a substantial amount of evidence for this to come forward. Um, well, there is, and yeah. it's going to come out in the trial, and we're learning 
in these hearings just before trial that just how much evidence there is and how many witnesses the prosecution uh, is going to put on. But also the other thing I wanted to draw a little parallel to what you went through is it's so frustrating to hear about these ridiculous jurisdictional problems between the Australian Australian authorities and the California authorities and, and California in particular, um, because in, in the case of the Masterson accusers, just to give you one example of what Mm -hmm. they, see, this is what, I wish people understood. Um, yes. There are still people that don't really understand this case very well. And they, you know, we've been covering it so close for five years now. Just that one little example. Um, the first detective they had with the LAPD back in 2016, when this thing finally got going, when they had discovered each other, went to the LAPD, they were assigned a detective. And that detective screwed up in so many ways. This was, a, mm-hmm. I'm saying this based on reporting I've done. Uh, mm-hmm. The very first story I did in March 2017 had excerpts from a letter one of the women had written the chief of police about these problems. So that's what I'm I'm drawing this from. Yeah. Just to give you one example, what they, you know, you're right. One of the p- tough things about these cases is evidence. Right. And so one way that police want to get that evidence are what's called controlled calls. So they will uh, ask, yes. they yes, will yes. ask a woman, we want you to call either the perpetrator or maybe somebody close to them Yes. Record while recording without the other person knowing, and the police can do this Yeah. and see if you can get them to say something about it. Right. And yeah. so the, the LAPD detective gave them a burner phone and said, here, use this phone, call up, not Danny directly, but they wanted her, her them to call like Danny's publicist, Danny's assistant Yes. Get them on the phone and see what they see if they could, you know, record them saying something that the police could use. Yes. And so these women got this burner phone. They're not dumb. Mm-hmm. The first thing they did was they took the phone number of the burner phone and typed it into Google. Mm-hmm. And immediately there were all these responses. Cop phone. Don't yeah. use it. Jeez. So this detective had given them a burner phone that had already been burnt in previous investigations and there were notified. So this is, you know, it's bad enough that these women are coming forward with rape allegations. They shouldn't have to go through this Mickey mouse garbage from the LAPD. Now they were fortunate that detective was gotten rid of. They got another detective who was much better, but in each level of this, they've run into some of the things that you have as well. And, and so that's another reason why I was so glad you spoke up this week to kind of let people know how difficult and slow these kinds of investigations are. It's so difficult. And, you know, I draw on um, in the article that I wrote uh, and, and, and that was my intention as well to say, to show like there's this history here, you know, and um, th- with regards to Carmen Rayner. Now uh, the case was dropped. There was, I believe uh, two counts of um, charges against Jan Eastgate. Now the police dropped the charges, but you know, why did they drop the charge? It was because they had filed the incorrect charge because they had charged Jan Eastgate um, according to a law that was present much later on. It was not present at the time that the crime had occurred. So they had charged her with the wrong um, crime basically, or the wrong, um, it didn't exist at the time and and but you know but then they just dropped it completely they didn't then go back and try and charge her with the correct one it's absolute madness and what we're talking about is a Scientology official coaching an 11 year old girl and telling her to a lot to lie to authorities that her stepfather had been sexually assaulting her that her sorry reframe that that her stepfather um to say that her stepfather had not been sexually assaulting her, right. you know, which had occurred from the ages between um, seven years old to 11 years old. Like this. It's, so it's, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not only bad enough that Scientology tries to handle all this stuff internally uh, and doesn't go to the authorities, but then to actively ask a child exactly. to lie to the police 
Why? In order to spare Scientology, right? Yes. Yes. And uh, and then then the case just got messed up on a technicality because they filed under the wrong, wrong statute or something. Yes. Yeah. And so these women in the Danny Masterson case, you know, I'm certain that they have experienced a number of these things, um, which I and also others have experienced. Um, and not only that, but at the beginning of it, you have to make a decision of like, am I willing to go up against the Church of Scientology? You know, and and that is that is a challenge, you know, in and of itself. You're not just, you know, making the decision to um, report and speak out about, you know, the violence that you have experienced by a particular perpetrator, but you're really, you're, there's so many decisions that you're actually making within that one thing. Um, and it can be incredibly intimidating, incredibly daunting. And not only that, but they also experience um, the the tactics by the church. Um, and I think went on for a number of years as well, where they they were punished, um, that they were treated like a criminal. These women have gone through years and years and years of abuse following the um the actual rapes that took place. Like, it's just harrowing to think about it. Oh, it's terrible. I mean, you know, uh, Jane Doe one, uh, went immediately to the church to say, Danny Masson raped me. So they put her through, uh, uh, past life counseling at Hollywood celebrity center. Yeah. Costing her $15,000 to find, things that happened in her past lives, uh, the, the evil things she had done in past lives in other centuries, other millennia that would, ju- would, that would make her a, a victim in this life. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's just amazing, but that that's, that's the Scientology way. Yeah. And I mean, I have personal experience to that. And when I've read the stories of these women, like it, it rings so true. Um, I, it's so crystal clear to me that, you know, these things occurred. Um, when I was 17, um, and as I mentioned before, I was leaving the Sea Org. And actually, at that time, I was on the RPF. And um, the, there is a sex check that you need to do before you leave the Sea Org. Um, and so that sect of security check, which is like a confessional, so you're on the e-meter, and they're asking you um, pre-prepared questions. And usually, there's actually just like a a sort of a set list of questions, but mine were specifically tailored to me. And the questions are asked and it's like, the questions were um, basically like, what did you do to make your father do this to you? Oh, I just God. like couldn't believe it. Oh. I was, I, I was just, I was actually quite uh, angry at the time. I was like, I was like, yeah, just letting off a few swear words. I was like, this is absolute bullshit. I'm not effing doing this. Like you guys can all get effed. Like I was just so completely outraged. Um, yeah, like it was, yeah. So, so yes, they absolutely do that. Um, yeah. And so I absolutely believe it, believe that that happened. Well, uh, based on your own experiences, can, can you understand that this has been a very, very difficult five years for these women that they've just been at their wits end at times. And it just seemed like it was never going to come. Absolutely. Um, and I'm sure that, um, at certain times they, you know, would have had the thought of like, do I just give up? Like, do I just walk away? Like what they've been up against is just, it's, I, I think it would be very, very difficult to understand, um, unless, you know, you were in their shoes. Um, and, and I'm sure the degrees of difficulty that, you know, that may never be completely, um, you know, communicated or understood. It's just, it's incredibly hard. And also because, you know, I, I talk about these little steps that you have to kind of take along the way. Um, and, and you have to understand that, like, yes, this is going to take a long time, but they definitely had other things that they had to deal with in the meantime throughout this entire process back from when they first reported it within Scientology. And also, as you said, like they didn't think they thought that they were the only ones that had experienced it. 
So they were completely alone and they were up against a massive organization that had complete power and control over them. And, and it's just, yeah, it's very, very, it would have been a, a, a very scary process right the way through. Yeah. And you just, you mentioned what you said is absolutely true. Not only have they had to deal with the police making mistakes, they've had to deal with some right. prosecutors. I won't say making mistakes, but the, you know, the prosecutors have not always made it, you know, all wonderful for them. It's Easy. been difficult. Yeah. I mean, like it took, you know, so long for the prosecutor charge to begin with, but generally I think they're getting really good work out of the police and the prosecutors. Now they're obviously getting mm-hmm. down to it. Um, but there's another layer and that is this whole time they've been getting harassed. Yes. And uh, I don't know if you saw this detail we reported the other day, but um, the the prosecutor, Reinhold Mueller, in court uh, a week ago or so, indicated that they plan as part of their case to bring in more than 20 yes. incidents of harassment. So, you know, there's this civil lawsuit where they're, tr- they're trying to pr- prove this the harassment. But in the criminal case, the the government, the people, the the, the, the district attorney are going to come in with evidence to show that these women are going through harassment. And, you know, I mean, I knew they were going through harassment. I know I know that there's evidence of it. There's very good evidence of it. But yes. I thought we'd have I thought we'd have to wait until the civil trial. I didn't know it was right. going to be part of the, the criminal trial. Which is but, amazing um, that, that, but it's that just, that's being brought in. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. And and the thing is, it's in a very important part of the case. And it's a very important part of why these women, um, you know, didn't immediately come to the LAPD to place a report. This is part right. of the story of their experience that, that you know, this whole thing has been, um, you know, a, such a big ordeal. Um, I also wanted to talk about another thing as well. You know, it's yeah. really difficult, um, and this has absolutely been the case um, with with these women's experience. Um, you know, so yes, the issue is can be the lack of evidence. But what do you do when it's an organization that is withholding the evidence that you require right. for your case? Good point. Um, right, and that organization is, you know, they're not going to release that, um, you know, they're trying to protect themselves so that you're up against this um, huge difficulty. So I know from like, just to draw back on my own experiences, um, this would have been 2013. So it was after I had first done the first uh, police report. And at this stage, it was um, being investigated um, actively. So the police officer asked me if I could reach out to anyone who might know about it and um, see if I can, you know, see if they'd be willing to provide a police statement. And I'd asked my mother at that time. And she said, first of all, she was like, oh, you know, um, I'm really disappointed in you that you went to the police. You know, you're not supposed to do that. Um, and and then she said, and I said, well, would you be willing to provide a police statement? She was like, oh, I, I can't give you an answer. I need to, and I quote, consult internally within the church. Okay. So this is not a, a mother who is available to me to provide any kind of, um, you know, support, I guess you could say. You know, she is completely owned by the church of Scientology because she, you know, is not willing to make any sort of movements or, um, decisions without them giving her, her blessing basically. So she did consult internally within the church. And, um, three weeks later, she called me and said, um, no, I'm not willing to write a statement. And then she went on to say, oh, we, couldn't you just ask for him to apologize to you <laughs> was the first thing. And then the second thing was, um, she's like, I know that he owns property and he could maybe give you some money. Um, but she was absolutely against the idea of me pursuing things with the police. And again, tried to dissuade me and, um, 
yeah, and and basically in offering those other solutions, she was you know trying to prevent me from moving forwards. Um, so that was really difficult because I I knew that she had had knowledge of it um, since I was twelve years old, and in fact, the police officer said that he had had email conversations with her where she said that my father came to her and confessed to her directly. But he wasn't sure if he could use that as evidence. You know, a written statement is obviously the better thing. Right. So these are the kind of things that they're coming up against. And as well as, you know, there's a, um, a history as well of, of where it was reported within the church that this had happened. And in fact, you know, when I did Scientology in the aftermath, they didn't try and discount or discredit that this had happened to me. So and in fact, they they actually admit uh, admit knowledge of it, and they just basically changed their time frame of when they found out about it. They had known for many years before they actually said that they became aware of it. But um, yeah, I mean, but that was only with the knowledge that I had already had this history of going to the police, and I had had uh, and my case was active and and all that sort of thing. I had that to sort of help me, but. Um, but certainly they're not going to be willing to release any documentation that says that they knew about it. Right. And, and that, you know, they're actively trying to keep the case from going forward. Absolutely. On the other, on the other hand, one of the interesting characteristics of Scientology is that they do write everything down uh, and they keep, they keep track of everything. And I think in the Masterson case, we're going to see some documents um, and uh, we're going to see some, there's a, there is a parallel um, I think with a family of situation. I, I should probably not say more than that. I'm just, I know some things, but we're going to see how it comes. It's coming out soon and yeah, we'll see how it goes. To trial. And, but there, but definitely are documents in this case. And um, some of them are church documents, I believe. So that's that's the you know Scientology may try to keep things under wraps, but it does keep records of everything. And yes. uh, if you can just get them to open the books or something, but that that should be interesting as well. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I would I would love absolutely loved in future. And I don't know if this will if, if if it will ever come to pass, but you know, for people to have access to those records, and I feel like that that is a person's right. But um, but I don't know that they would ever do that. Um, willingly um but yeah i am very interested to you know see um what happens with this trial and you know absolutely hoping for an outcome for these women who have gone through so much and the delays and um you know which have been requested like it's just absolutely just the whole way through has just been i'm sure an absolute nightmare um and as well i was just going to say about the arbitration at one stage um i think there was a previous judge who had well that's the civil case that's that's the civil civil one okay yeah separate separate case but parallel yeah yeah Yeah, um i just couldn't like i could just i remember seeing that and just like i just couldn't believe it like i just if you know it just was like that is just an absolute nightmare an absolute nightmare um yeah so i just absolutely wish all the best for these women and um yeah we'll see what happens and do you know um how much information we'll have access to during the trial well um i have uh got uh, i was put on the list i re- i requested and i was put on the list to uh be one of the reporters that gets to cover the trial from gavel wow. to gavel yeah i'll be flying there uh this weekend and uh, jury selection begins on Tuesday, October 11th, yeah. I have been told by the court that during jury selection, which may last several days, um, they only want one reporter in the room at a time. And then the reporters okay. will all be sharing that uh, pool reporters. Information. Yeah. Um, and that's um, some people think that jury selection for a case like this would take a week. Um, Judge Olmedo says she can do it in two days. I don't know, because yeah. one of the things that's going to be special for this is, you know, both the prosecution and the and the defense get to have input on the questionnaire. Of course, they're going to quiz every potential juror about, do you, have you ever been in Scientology? Have you ever yeah. read Dianetics? Do you know the history, you know, anything about Scientology? Have you heard of Danny Masterson? So I can imagine that it may take a while 
Uh, but Judge Almeida seems to think that that'll go pretty quick. Then we'll get right into opening statements and then testimony. Um, the way the preliminary hearing worked uh, last year in Los Angeles, they had um, they put on Jane Doe number one first, and mm. she gave uh, testimony, and then Tom Mesro cross-examined her, and that took a few days. So I assume it'll be something like that this time. I don't know the order of witnesses, but that's mm. the way it went in the preliminary hearing. And uh, so they'll have the witness, they'll have the victims testify. Uh, then there are other people that are going to testify. Law enforcement officials are going to testify. And I believe some documents are going to come in. So that could take quite a while. I believe at this point that the defense is not going to call witnesses of their own. They're just going to cross-examine the prosecution witnesses, which I think is fairly typical for a case like this. As mm-hmm. far as your question on, on under the, the, the getting the information, Judge Olmedo early on said because of the nature of the crimes three counts of forcible rape against three different women mm-hmm. and those women being in the courtroom and two of them going by jane doe one jane doe two and not using their names mm-hmm. judge Olmedo very early on said there will not be cameras in this courtroom yeah so nobody's going to be able to watch that but i'll be there i'll be there all day every day i'll be running out to, if, if you remember how it went down at the preliminary hearing last last year at every break, I ran out to the hallway and gave an update to everybody at the website. So, and, and there will be a lot of reporters there. I won't, you know, plenty of reporters doing very good work, but I'll be doing my best to, you know, because people know my, you know, the underground bunker people know that I tend to focus on real little details that the other press doesn't. Mm. Um, but they'll be they'll be able to, you know, see a lot of different um, versions of it. But there should be a ton of reporting going on from that case and people will be able to follow along so i hope you know sounds like you know the case pretty well yourself um just just bits and pieces i've definitely sort of like kept an eye on it you know here and there just gotten a bit of an update um yeah because the you know having had some similar experiences i guess um you know i do feel um uh, I, what can I say? Like, I guess, is it empathy? It's like, I, I understand some of what these women have been through. So yeah, I just, you know, um, I just well, really I thought, hope the best for them. Yeah. Well, I thought your piece this week was so well-timed. Thank you so much for, for, we haven't talked in a while. I'm so glad you contacted me again and your piece was so perfectly timed. I think it will educate people because look, people are going to hear about Danny, 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 right? Mm -hmm. They're going to hear about Danny's acting, Danny's family, Danny's involvement in Scientology, Danny's past with these, you know, one of the, one of the women he was actually had a relationship with and, you know, all this focus on Danny. And I think somewhat gets lost. Um, what story? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because the defense is look the in a, the defense in a case like this always goes one way, and that is to trash these women. They're going to trash mm-hmm. their memories, their stories, their credibility, their motives. It's just going to be trash, trash, trash. And I, I look. That's just the way these cases go, and we'll see how the, what the jury thinks. But I want people to understand even before that first gavel falls, Mm -hmm. what these women have been through for all these years. And so that's why I thank you that you wrote that piece because you have given our readers a glimpse of what that journey is like, because you've certainly been through it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I hope as well, like that it can be seen that that this, that's just like a little tiny part of the piece, you know, that was, you know, the lead up to when I first, um, you know, made my first police report. And I have done more police reports since then. And the process is so grueling to sit down and, you know, pull apart and to go back there and relive those things. It's just, um, the other thing as well, I will say, you know, when you're providing a a police report, it's like, it's it's not just good enough to say like, my dad did did this to me, right? Um, Or this person did this to me. It, you have to, you know, drill down into every single detail, you know, where was the window positioned? Where was the bed positioned? Where, um, you know, I I actually, I had to, in um, 2013, when I was doing, I did like a a very intensive um, police statement, which took all day. 
And part of that where I was, you know, I had to write out diagrams of the layout. So for every single incident that occurred, I had to do a diagram of the layout of the room, you know, to that level of detail. And it's, you know, it's and to describe things, describe what had happened. And it's very difficult. So even just that part of the process, um, and then that's not even the end of it. And then there's, you know, there's years of just waiting to see if it's going to go anywhere and, you know, following up. And um, it's just this, you know, it's, and then, you know, and that's not even to where you're even, you haven't even arrived at the the courtroom yet, which is incredibly intimidating experience in itself. So I hope that like, I can just provide some little bit of my experience to, to give some understanding that, um, yeah, it's it's a really difficult thing to um, to try and you know go down this route of um, you know reporting to the police and then also what happens after that. And that's even if you get in the end, you might not get um, a successful result. And in fact, in Australia, the conviction rate is one point five percent. It's just like you know, it's very yeah. difficult. Well, I think you've done a wonderful thing and you've helped us understand that situation. And I really, you know, I'm grateful that you reached out to us. And I hope that uh, as this thing goes forward, we can talk to you about some other things as well. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much, Miriam. Thanks for coming on. Thank you.